Are you the proud spring of all your actions, the creator of the final verdict, or simply the lone observer on the sideline, rigidly, against all odds, thinking they are yours? Locked away, in your head lies a riddle, hidden from yourself in plain sight, examining what we know and wish to find, a glimpse at the matter of the mind. <coughs> yeah, let's do it. I'm Florian. My name is Nick. And welcome back. To our last episode. Very last one. Very, very last one. Of Matter of the Mind. So, um, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to start this episode with just a, a hypothetical situation. Okay. Imagine this very, very dark tunnel. Um, despite you wearing... A lot of layers of clothes. It's cold. What, what, what does the tunnel look like? Well, you've been walking in there for quite a while. And it's been all the same, really. It's been very dark. And it's a bit moist in there. Mm. Um, sometimes you touch the sides and, yeah, it's cold. It doesn't sound nice. Yeah, it's sort of an unpleasant experience. And mm -hmm. you sort of want the tunnel to end and literally just see the light at the end of the tunnel. And at some point you do, and you start walking a little bit faster and faster. And then at some point you reach the source of light. To your surprise and also a bit to your disappointment, it's not the end of the tunnel. It's only a flickering candlelight. What? And you've reached the dead end of the tunnel. You look around a little bit, get acclimatized to the light, and at some point you notice two doors. Two doors? Two doors. One on the left side and one on the right side. So the tunnel is like moist and seems a bit like not well maintained, but there's just two like doors? There's like two doors. And the doors look surprisingly clean and new. They're sort of identical uh, in the way they look, uh, how big they are. There's just one difference. The one on the right is blue, and the one on the left is red. And it sort of sounds maybe like this story is headed to be a, a Matrix story. <laughs> and it sort of is, because my question for you is, which one do you choose? Hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't have a map or anything, right? You don't have a map. I don't really have any information to go by. So I would say I like blue. So I'm just going to take the blue door and just hope for the best. All right. I mean, you could have given a bit more thought to this, but fair enough. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't have any information. No, right. Like, right what is right. this hypothetical even about? Like, this is, it's not, it's, I don't think there's an easy way to get out of this decision. Like, no, no. 
But the way you can imagine this decision is that there's just two options that you have, right? Yeah, yeah. so the, okay, okay. So then like, two doors are two options. Exactly, like left or right, and in your case, blue or red. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that you have two decisions makes this sort of similar to another situation, another decision that you can make. Your, uh, you've got two options. First option is uh, moving to London, studying at a prestigious university. Uh, it's going to teach you a lot of skills that you could use for your future career in podcasting. <laughs> um, the other option is uh, having to move back to Dusseldorf, where you're from. You get this nice uh, house close to your parents, about two kilometers away. And uh, you get this job at this very much up-and-coming, new, popular German podcasts, all spoken in German. Which one would you choose? I mean, um, that's a very, very real-life example. <laughs> but in a way, I don't know. I would, I would, I think I would. I'm, I'm a pretty rational person, so I think what I would do is. Write down the the pros and cons for either situation. Um, for example, I don't necessarily want to move back to Germany to live like right next to my parents, even though I love my parents. On the other hand, I could visit them a lot more, so that would be nice. Um, All right, Flo, I'm I'm just gonna interrupt you here because I don't want you to make a decision just like this. Why? It's a tough decision to make. I realize that. So you're saying like I can't I can't make the decision now in like that one minute. I wouldn't be able to in your situation. Mm. If I were you, I would want to think about it for a bit longer. Maybe, you know, ask my parents or ask my friends and then sleep on it for a night. Okay, so so then what is what is the point? The reason why I've been asking you those questions is that there is something striking about the way you make those decisions. Okay. Cause and I don't know if you noticed that yourself, but what you seem to be doing every single time with every single decision that you make is that you look at the pros of all your options you look at the cons and you weigh them against each other yeah and only after you've done that very carefully you make a decision yeah no i mean i can definitely see that so i basically like i consider all the options and all the things that sort of come with the options you know whether that's uh, the city I want to live in, or or which door to take. Yeah, and you seem to be very free in doing so. Mm-hmm. But I think that's how everybody would do it. Right, but then what I find striking about that is that we tell ourselves that story. The story of us being responsible for our own life, for shaping our decisions. But at the same time, we also have a different story. What story? What story is that? About us being the product of the society that we live in. Yeah. We tell ourselves that we are who we are because of our genes, our parents, our education. Because of our like friends, because of you, Nick. <laughs> um, but, but, but then those two are quite different, right? Like you have, on the one hand, us being sort of free agents and us making our own decisions, and on the other hand, sort of us you know, just being influenced by all these different factors, right? Exactly. It's almost as if there's two stories running parallel as a red thread through our lives. But, okay, that kind of makes me wonder, aren't they contradicting each other? 
Like, if, if those two stories really exist together, aren't we sort of lying to ourselves? Like, is there one or the other that's true, or is there a completely different story that's true? Like, when I make those decisions, am I making? Am I the person that's making those decisions? I think you've come to the question of this episode, which is, which is, are we free, or only desperately clinging on to the idea that we're free? And the reason why I'm talking about this is because this whole free will debate has been going on for quite a while. But then in this whole debate, there's a new player. And this new player is neuroscience. So I'm guessing we're talking to a neuroscientist that does exactly that. Okay, my name is uh, Victor Lommer. I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience here at the Department of Psychology of the University of Amsterdam. My initial background is medicine, uh, but then I quickly found out that, you know, I, I found it really interesting to know how the human body works, but how to heal it, well, that was not really my interest. So I did only a few days of internships, and then I, well, I really decided for myself, well, these patients, that's not really my cup of tea. So I went into research and what I was immediately after then was to research that part of the human body, which was the most mysterious at that time, and by the way, it still is, of course, which is the brain. Because, of course, it's sort of incomprehensible how with, you know, 1.5 kilograms of protein and fat, yeah. you can have these conscious sensations. Yeah. That, that we, 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 we have these conscious visual percepts, but of course also our thoughts and ideas and intentions and all these things. So how is that possible given this very, well, biological machinery that's underlying it. Victor started realizing more and more that much of what we do is unconscious. So at some point I started writing, popular science writing that is. So instead of my regular uh, journal writing, I started to write popular science because I found out that I actually enjoy that. So I started to write about these unconscious things and, you know, and, but then I, somehow, yeah, you stumble upon this thing that so much of what we do and the decisions we make and the actions we take uh, are steered by all these unconscious processes. You start to wonder, well, okay, so what's, what's actually the influence of our conscious thoughts and things like that on the things we do? You know, conscious thoughts, intentions, and, you know, opinions, they have such a marginal, if not absent, influence on what we do that you have to draw the con conclusion that free will does not exist. And of course, what I mean with free will is this idea that we steer our actions or our decisions with our thoughts, with our intentions, with our opinions. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. Wow, I mean, that's, that's quite a big statement to make, right? He, he's saying that we don't actually control all of our actions, all the things that we do, all of our decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's coming from a scientist and 
they always tend to be quite careful with how they formulate stuff. Definitely. But this guy definitely isn't. He's even that convinced of the non-existence of free will that he wrote a book which is aptly named Free Will Does Not Exist. Okay, and, and that's just purely based on the idea that a lot of stuff happens unconsciously, or...? Well, Victor explained to me how he came to draw this conclusion. What I actually found the most convincing arguments against this notion of free will were studies where it was shown that actually recording from brains can better predict the choices that people are going to make than their intentions. This ranges from saying, okay, Nick, well, Nick, Nick, this, Nick. This, like, I think we got to slow down for a moment. Okay, how so? Well, to me, it isn't really clear what exactly we're talking about because I feel like Victor Lama just gave a definition of free will that is sort of different from the definition I had in my mind earlier. So I think before we go into this discussion, yeah, I think it's pretty important that we sort of first define what we're talking about and then we can try to argue in favor or against it, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And for that reason, I invited someone else to the show today. I'm David Roof. I'm an associate professor of criminal law, and since a year I've been also an extraordinary professor in criminal law and neurosciences. To be completely honest with you, I invited him for a different reason, but all of this is coming up later. While we were talking, he explained quite nicely what free will really means in his opinion. And that's a difficult question because... And that's, I think, immediately also one of the difficulties in the whole debate. Because what does one mean with free will if one is not clear from the beginning about that, then one does not understand one's arguments pro and against. Now, first, the free will that is under discussion, so to speak, under attack by neuroscientists, is in itself already not always that clear, depending on who is doing the attack. David Roof believes there's two definitions of free will that are commonly used. And some neuroscientific statements are addressing the first aspect and some the latter. Let me explain. The first is really free will, as discussed in the age-old philosophical discussion of how to reconcile our free will in a universe that is determined. Can we have free will and consequentially responsibility in a completely determined universe? In other words, in a universe that does not give me alternative options. Question number one. Are we determined? And would that imply that we are not free? If determinism is true, it stands to reason that such free will is completely non-existent. Because your decision to come here, my decision to talk with you, my decision to get some water because it's hot and I want to drink, is completely determined by past causes. Neuroscience doesn't have anything new to say in that debate. Whether you are determined by DNA, brain, the stars, or God, doesn't make the philosophical question different whether I'm free in a deterministic universe. Neuroscience will never be able to prove whether we are determined or not. One cannot prove or disprove determinism, and even if indeterminism would be true, the opposite. In other words, that the causes of our behavior are not determined but indetermined. In other words, at random, that would not give me the freedom we want. Okay, so 
David thinks that neuroscience cannot add anything to the first question of free will. But then what about the second definition? And we still have to decide, and that's the second part of the free will discussion, and that's, I think, more important, and most neuroscientists are correctly addressing that. That's whether my decision is my decision, whether I am causing anything with my decision-making. Question number two. Is our consciousness part of the causal chain? Am I the source of my decision? Do I cause anything? That's what draws the most attention. And one should not even use the word determinism to talk about that. Because determinism and indeterminism is really not relevant. And for the law, completely irrelevant. What is relevant is, if I decide to get some water, is that decision the cause of getting me the water? If I decide to kill you, to make it into a criminal law example, is my decision to kill you the cause that I want to kill you? Oh, that's interesting. So, theoretically, there could be a case where somebody commits a murder, but then that murder isn't actually charged because the person didn't actually have the intention to do it, but they just kind of wait, did wait. it in the mo flow. Can you stick to the point for a bit? Okay, fine. In short, what David was talking about were two different definitions of free will. One was about determinism, and the other one was about being part of the causal chain. What David claims is that neuroscience cannot say anything meaningful about the first, but could theoretically say something about the second definition. Okay, that makes more sense now. So now that we've cleared up the definitional problem, if I recall it correctly, Victor just started talking about the examples of how we could predict people's actions from brain scans, right? Right. But before we go back to him, I want to go back some time in history, to the 1980s, to be precise. The decade of crazy haircuts and neon colors. Yes, that but also the dawn of a big discussion about free will in neuroscience. Yeah, so uh, Libet, I think he did his studies in 1983, or at least the most of his studies. This is the person that's going to talk to us about the Libet experiments. Yes, all right. So my name is Lika Asma. I um, studied psychology first, more cognitive psychology, and um, I did my uh, master thesis on, um, well, neuroscientific topics. Um, when I was presenting this work and this master thesis to my supervisors and my family, I was like, okay, there are a lot of questions I have, which are more philosophical questions, mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, what is exactly the relationship between the brain and the mind, for example. So then I decided to study philosophy of behavioral science in Nijmegen. After having completed her studies, Lieke continued trying to involve both psychology and philosophy in the research that she does. She works on action theory, trying to understand how human willful actions work and how they come to be. She started off telling us what the Libet experiments entailed. So um, the major idea was that uh, Kornhuber and Deke in the 60s um, 
studied what happens in the brain if people act spontaneously and and freely, if you want to define it as freely. Um, And they saw that there was this buildup of a readiness potential. So there was already a buildup of activity before people make this voluntary movement, like moving their wrist or moving their fingers. So even before an action, like moving your finger, was performed, they saw that activity in the cortex of the brain was already increasing. And then Liebet wanted to know, all right, so we know the brain activity, we know the bodily movement, but where is the conscious intention in this story? So at what point do we have this conscious intention to make this movement? And, well, he kind of expected, or at least if you believe in free will on certain views, you would expect that this conscious intention occurs before the buildup of this readiness potential, so that you first consciously decide... I'm going to move my finger at some point, and then you have this buildup of activity. Okay, so then how did he actually test it in an experiment? All right, Flo, imagine the following setup. You are sitting in a room, electrodes are just placed on your head, and you're asked to perform an action as often as you want to. A simple action like moving your finger. And now the experiment starts. Before you is a big clock, and a dot starts revolving slowly around the clock. It revolved at different points pretty quickly, and then they had to remember at which point they first became aware of the conscious intention and report afterwards. So it could be sort of at two o'clock or something. Yeah, they have to uh, yeah uh, mm. give that number. Okay, so then in the end you have three time points, right? Like you saying. This is when I became aware of my intention, which is like the, the point on the clock, right? The moment when the, the EG, uh, the electrodes in your head measure a readiness potential, mm. and then when you're actually executing the action. And also in that very specific order, conscious intention, readiness potential, execution of the action. That is, if you believe that free will exists. But instead of that, he found that there was already a buildup of activity, I think about 300 milliseconds before you have this conscious intention. And 200 milliseconds after that, you make these bodily movements. Meaning readiness potential, conscious intention, execution of the action. That's weird, don't you think? Like, yeah. I really wouldn't have expected that. Like, in a way, you would you would expect that once you have the conscious intention, only then the process in your brain starts to sort of initiate the action, right? Yeah, right? Like, if you believe in free will, this is not supposed to happen. I think this is actually pretty shocking. Like, this is weird. And I think a lot of people were surprised. Also, Libet himself, who thought nicely about the order in which those things were supposed to happen, yeah. like we discussed before. And now it appears that all of this wasn't true. Okay, so judging from the study, you could kind of say that a conscious intention is not actually causing anything, right? Like in this experiment, an action is already initiated before we are aware. So then where does the consciousness come in? Because to me, it seems like consciousness is not part of the causal chain, which then, according to this second definition of David Roof, would disprove free will, right? It's easy to conclude that from those experiments, but... 
Even Libet himself, who found those results, was trying to save our control. So his idea in the end was, well, okay, maybe we cannot consciously initiate our actions, so that there is this build-up mm. and we cannot really control it. Uh, that just happens, but we can still decide that we might not act on it. So mm. we do have some sort of free won't, some veto control. While the readiness potential is building and building and building, Stop. you can still Stop. cancel the action. Stop! So that was his um, view. But then uh, in later studies that have been conducted like the last eight years or something, they also found predictive activity of whether someone decided to veto or not. So then you have the same problem, then this veto is also not free. Let's say uh, you read this in the newspaper in, in uh, 1983. What would your first reaction be? Oh, I would probably <laughs> also be shocked. Because the first time I was confronted with that experiment, I was also like, wow, that's very interesting. What's going on? But after looking into it more and looking into all the assumptions, I really sometimes have to recover. Why is this threatening again? So now it's much more difficult for me to... Um, take the perspective of someone who really think that this is a problem because I think it totally evaporates if you look into all the details. Okay, I don't I, I don't really see that. To me, this seems like quite strong evidence that we are not actually deciding what to do ourselves. And with you, there are many other people that think like that. But David and Lika have a different way of looking at it. All right, let's take a look at the critique. The first point of critique is the sort of decisions that the Libet-like experiments are investigating and how we need to be careful to extrapolate those findings to other decisions that we make as humans. The decisions that the Libet-like experiments are talking about are all... Proximate motoric intentions, most of them. What David tries to stress here is that you have different sorts of intentions and decisions that we make as humans on a daily basis. All these experiments are focused upon proximal, short-term intentions. So not about goal intentions, but also not about what leads me to reach my goal, what's called uh, the distal implementation intentions. Let's look at this a bit closer with an example. I mean, we're talking here with a law professor, so let's take the case of a murder. A guy walks on the street after having gone out for a night, has been drinking a lot, and gets insulted. Instead of walking away and just ignoring the comments, the guy takes out his knife, walks up to the passerby, stabs him a few times. The other guy dies a few minutes later. The only thing that neuroscientific experiments try to challenge is not so much that the guy in your example acts following a rage, but his motoric movements that he uses in order to act, that he takes a knife and then stabs the guy. Yeah, that makes sense. Like if, if you were planning a murder for a really long amount of time, 
the, the this thing that Liebert experiment is is showing would only actually affect the 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 act of stabbing somebody at the very end, but not the actual planning. But even if you purely look at those bodily movements themselves, there's another reason why the Libet-like experiments are not as lifelike as you want them to be. They often say, well, these studies show that we um, do not act for reasons because we um, uh, act unconsciously or we act for unconscious motives. But then they do studies in which um, there are no reasons to act for. For example, in this Libet-style experiment, there's no reason to move your wrist five seconds earlier or five seconds later. It's mm. just there's no... Um, well, they want there to be a certain kind of case for it to be free will, and then they test it in a way that they're, that it cannot be met. I mean, she has a point, right? If If you think about free will, you really think about deciding something, about making a decision, about having a motive. And I guess in these kind of experiments, that doesn't exist. And because there is no reason to act... And thus, free will is not coming into play. You can't really draw a conclusion that free will does not exist based on those experiments. Yeah, especially in like a real life situation, right? But I guess what it shows is just how difficult it is to engineer an experiment that that tests free will in real life. And on top of that, Lika argues that unconscious actions and conscious actions are sometimes more intertwined than we tend to think. And because of that, drawing conclusions from certain aspects of an action might not do complete justice to how free the whole action is. So, uh, for example, I in my uh, dissertation, I um, really isolated the intentional action and then looked at all these kinds of influences. And it turns out that often we consciously act so for example i consciously walk to the supermarket to buy bread but then you have all these kinds of priming studies for example what lika means with priming is that by exposing people to certain cues we might affect their behavior unconsciously those cues could be anything it could be smells it could be ideas it could be stereotypes okay but then do you do you have a specific example so imagine you're participating in a research. And there are two groups. Group one gets exposed to words that people usually associate with the elderly. Words like Florida, gray, or wrinkles. Then in the other group, those words are not used in the conversation. Let's say you're assigned to the group that gets exposed to these words. Then, after the experiment is supposedly over, and you're leaving the room, the researchers measure at what pace you're doing so, and then compare that to group two. What they found is that the people that just heard these words actually leave the room more slowly. So it means I would walk more slowly out of that room. Yeah, and despite the fact that your action is free. I of mean, course, I wanted to leave the room, that makes sense. You're deciding that yourself you appear to be not so free in the speed that you're walking with. Huh. Because you are walking at a slower pace after you've been exposed to certain ideas. And when you're asked about the speed, you might actually not be conscious about the fact that you walk more slowly than you would have otherwise. 
So the action in itself is free, but the speed at which you're walking isn't. And of course, priming can make me go earlier or walk faster or maybe buy a different brand of bread, but still I consciously buy the bread. So my yeah. main point is that conscious action and all these unconscious influences do not exclude each other, but yeah. they interact. Okay, that makes sense. So even though you have these unconscious influences that can affect an action, it doesn't actually mean that your the action as a whole is is not free, right? You can still have free will and still be affected and biased by the things. But let's now turn to the next critique. One of the assumptions of the Libet style experiments is that the readiness potential is actually causing an action. So if you would wear glasses, then every night before you go to bed, you take your glasses off. But taking your glasses off is not the cause of you going to bed. I mean, I get her example, okay? So you, of course, taking your glasses off is not the cause of somebody going to sleep. But then I feel like most neuroscientific research is just correlation. I think there is a little difference here. I mean, what you're saying is true. When you're executing a certain task and at the same time there is a brain region that is activated, you can conclude those two are correlated. The brain region might be involved in executing the action. Mm -hmm. If you were to do that in the Libet experiments, you could say the readiness potential is involved in executing the action. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but even if you would interpret those studies in that direction, then you cannot even conclude that they cause the intention, the readiness potential, because they did not manipulate anything. So you cannot draw any causal conclusions. It's just a correlation. Yeah, yeah or it's just a sequence of events. Um, yeah, so you cannot even draw the conclusion that it's causal, and you definitely cannot conclude that it's a deterministic relationship. So there's another point that I'd like to bring up. And Flo, I know we've had a lot of discussion about this. We have. We're still not really agreeing on this point. <laughs> but I think it's important to talk about it for a little while. For sure. And that is the way free will is looked at in those experiments. So the way I see free will is that free will exists only on the level of a whole person. Mm-hmm. So if we just look at the brain like neuroscience does, we're only looking at a very specific part of that individual. And we're then sort of claiming that we are our brain. Mm -hmm. But this just doesn't work for a concept like free will. There is no such thing as a free will of our brain. There's only a thing like a free will of my whole being, of myself, mm -hmm. of you. It's a reductionist way of looking at what free will is. I understand where you're coming from. But what I would say is if we go by the second definition of free will, which is that consciousness is part of the causal chain, yeah. I would say, given a lot of neuroscientific evidence, that consciousness likely arises in the brain. And then I think if you just look at the brain and then you figure out that consciousness isn't part of the causal chain, with the Libet experiment, or a different experiment for that matter, in a way we disprove that free will exists, right? Again, I think that as well as free will, also consciousness is a phenomenon that exists only in the individual. Mm -hmm. There is no consciousness of your brain. There is a consciousness of your being. 
mm, of me. Yeah. So by just purely looking at the brain and saying I'm looking at consciousness and I'm making conclusions about free will, then you're drawing those conclusions, you're talking about those concepts on a brain level. But they don't exist on a brain level. They only exist on the level of an individual. But then don't you think that that, that sort of applies to the whole of neuroscience, right? That you always reduce things to the brain. I mean, you do that to some extent, right? I think it's sort of inherent to the field of neuroscience that you look at it from a reductionist perspective, right? You are just involving yourself in the brain. And I think by doing that, you can definitely make comments about what the brain is involved in, what the brain is doing. But specifically the case of free will, in which the level of the brain is not so relevant, but only the level of the individual, you need to be careful with drawing conclusions. And I know we're not going to agree on this now, but just for the sake of our listeners and the sake of time, <laughs> I think we need to cut this discussion. We need now. to move on. <laughs> Until now, we've been talking a lot about conscious intentions. And what we've been saying is that if we were to be free, those conscious intentions have to precede our actions. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly like in the liberty. Yeah, right? right. You have to first come up with an intention, a desire to do something. And if we were to be free, only after that, we can actually start doing the action. But Lika proposes to look at this a bit differently. Yeah. So I also think that this way of understanding it as a causal chain well, it already implies that there always has to be this moment of reflection mm. and that there has to be this moment that you're really aware of what you're doing. Yeah. But how it, I think, in reality goes is that you consciously act and that you um, you do not often reflect before, oh, now I'm going to get my bike and cycle to the university. No, you just walk outside, but you're fully aware of what you're doing. So while you are undertaking an action, your consciousness is constantly sort of fine-tuning what you're doing. She calls that consciousness in action. So it's not some sort of preceding conscious state, but yeah. it's consciousness in action. If we look at, well, our actions in daily life, most of the things we just do consciously in the sense that, that we are aware of doing that, that we're, we're able to correct ourselves, that yeah. we just can report immediately what we're doing. So, yeah, so it's a consciousness in action, yeah. Okay, so if I think about all the points of critique and all the arguments you just went through, I feel like the Liebert experiments and like all the experiments that followed it, they're not so scary anymore. Mm. Like initially when you hear about them, like I think they are quite threatening, right? But then if you really think about it, go through all the arguments, I don't think that they're threatening anymore. And, and it kind of makes me wonder if if neuroscience research in general can even say anything about free will at all. I, I think it's a little bit too early to draw any conclusions about that because, as you remember, the Libet experiments, they happened a long time ago, in the 1980s. And ever since then, a lot of people sort of jumped on the train of the free will debate and they started conducting new experiments, experiments that were usually more advanced than the Libet ones. 
So I'm guessing now we're going to go back to Victor Lama, right? Yes, Victor Lama is back to elaborate a bit more on those experiments. Yeah, the, the, the body of, of, of evidence has, has grown to such an extent that the conclusion is sort of inevitable now. One of these more advanced studies took place in California and is very aptly known as the sunscreen experiment. So in this experiment, people were shown that, you know, if you walk a lot in the sun, these were people that lived in California, so they're exposed to a lot of sunshine. If you walk a lot in the sun and if you don't, you know, if you don't use sunscreen, you will get skin cancer and things like that. You know, sort of positive advertisements for the use of sunscreen. So they put people in the fMRI scanner and they were shown statements about the dangers of sun exposure and the use of sunscreen. While they were in the brain scanner, they were, sh- sh- they were shown these, these, these statements. Now, then after that, people had to fill out a questionnaire where they had to, to fill out whether they were going to use this st- stuff more or not. Now, then say about half pe- of, of, the, of the subjects answered, well, yeah, maybe I should do that a bit more. I think I'm going to use this, uh, more sunscreen in the coming time. But the other half of the subjects filled out, well, no, I don't care about that. Thanks for the information, but uh, I'm not going to change my behavior. And then subsequently, these subjects were given a few of the of, of, of bottles of sunscreen to take home, and they thought the experiment was over. Uh, so now they were free to live their lives, you might say. I assume the experiment was not actually over, and there was actually a second part, right? This was meant to be a cliffhanger, yeah. But um, indeed, the experiment wasn't over yet. This was only... Just the beginning. Uh, one or two weeks afterwards, they were given a surprise phone call, and then they were asked, okay, you remember those bottles we gave you? What did you actually do with those? They asked both groups of people, the people that said that they would use the sunscreen and the people that said that they wouldn't. And then some people reported that they used them, and other people reported that they didn't. They did not use them. Uh, but then they looked back at the, the, the questionnaires, And then what they found was that there was really a zero correlation between the intentions that people had filled out in these questionnaires and their actual behavior. Indicating a point which you can find in all sorts of other research is that intentions are a very weak predictor uh, of actual behavior, particularly when it comes to change of behavior. I actually find that quite shocking because usually I feel like your intentions matter, right? Like if you want to do something, most of the time you end up doing it. Yeah. I mean, I've I've had things that I, you know, wanted to do and then I don't end up doing them. Like, For instance, uh, you're working out plans, right? Exactly. I've wanted to work out every morning, haven't done it. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. But then, okay, but then they did an fMRI scanner. Right? Yeah, they put people in a scanner. So, what about that? Then what they then found was that the, the impact of these messages on, well, parts of the brain which are usually implicated in, in these kinds of decisions that people make, uh, did have a positive correlation, a predictive value uh, towards whether people were going to use it or not. Put simply, you could actually predict based on those brain scans if people were going to use the sunscreen or not. And that's crazy. So it's, it's, it's real-life behavior. It's not happening in a lab, but it happens in a day-to-day situation. Yeah, so it's not pushing buttons in a labor- laboratory because you know, people thought the experiment was over and they just lived their lives for two weeks. 
talks about long-term intentions. So mm-hmm. what am I going to do in the next three weeks? And free will does really come into play in that. Yeah. It's relevant behavior because, you know, it's related to your health. We're talking about something that matters to people. We're talking about their health. Mm-hmm. And they still find something. And they still find something like this. And you find these kinds of results. So I think that's the best version of the Libet experiment uh, around. So this tells you that it's the brain, well, what else, of course, but that it's the brain which is determining the the final decision. Yeah. And that these intentions that people have at the same time are not really driving that decision. Yeah. Uh, the, these conscious thoughts that people have, well, at best, they are sort of a post-hoc explanation or, yeah. or rationalization of the decisions that people take. And that is... I would even say a bit scary, almost. Mm-hmm. You have this famous uh, choice blindness experiment presented by Johansson. What he did, he, he showed he showed male subjects he sh- uh, two images of two two w- women, uh, and then every trial the person had to say which of the two do you like best. Okay, so if I was in the experiment, I'm sitting in the lab and I'm looking at two different pictures of two different women, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say like the one is, is blonde and the other one's ginger, and I would say, okay, I like the one with the red hair. I find her more attractive. Yeah. So he's, the person selects one of the photographs, and then he's given the photograph, but then there is some sort of sleight of hand performed so that he's given the one that he didn't select. Then later on, I'm actually shown the picture of the other woman, right? The one with the blonde hair. Yeah, and... The researchers are pretending like you pick that one as being the most attractive one. Uh, and then one of the first striking thing is that in 80% of the trials, the subject doesn't even notice that he's given the other person. Really? Yeah, so you would be given the photo of the blonde girl and you'd have no idea that that was not actually the one that you chose. And then he has to explain, okay, why did you choose her? And then the person will give an explanation which fits this second photograph, which he didn't actually select. So, for example, he might say, well, I just happen to like people with blonde hair. I would literally be like, I like the blonde one because she's blonde and because she's pretty and she's like, exactly. and more attractive. And, and you're explaining this and you're giving reasons for your decisions, but it's not actually your decision. It's just a story that you're making up to explain a decision that I didn't that you didn't make. So we just as easily give a, a rationalization or an explanation for a choice that we d- didn't even make as that we are given explanations for choices that we our brain does make. What this clearly shows is that these post-hoc rationalizations, well, for one thing, they're post-hoc, but they're also nothing more than sort of guesses. Not not very different from, say, when I try to explain why, say, my wife or my children are doing things. You know, I might be right, but I might be just as well, might be wrong. Yeah, it's, it's still an educated guess. Yeah. And of course, the longer you, the longer your your conscious thoughts are accompanying this body, which in my case is now almost 60 years, (laughs) 
uh, yeah, it's it, then it's likely that these gases get better and better, but they're still not steering the decision. They're yeah. just postdoc rationalizations, of course. And this is actually an important concept in Victor's story. He calls it a chatterbox, a quibble dose. So we are chatterboxes then? So we are a chatterbox. We are just talking, giving reasons for what we're doing, but those are not actually the reasons why we're doing something. Mm -hmm. You can compare this with a football commentator. Imagine the following situation. You're in a football stadium watching Ajax versus, give me a German club flow. Um, I'm just going to say Borussia Dortmund. Ajax, Borussia Dortmund. And the match just started. When the stadium. Watching. The crowd's gone wild. And then this happens. And he läuft, and he läuft. And then comes the pass. And zack, it's in the right winkel. Super, Julian Brandt has it geschafft. Tor, Tor, Tor for Borussia Dortmund. That's again a super Spiel, that they played. Alright, that was in German. I didn't expect that. But I guess a goal was scored. Yes, a goal right? was scored. A goal was scored. So every time that the football commentator is screaming that, a goal is actually being scored. So he starts thinking. Ich hab das Tor geschossen. Wieder war super. Ich hab's gemacht. Super. Feiert mich. The football commentator starts thinking that he is the one scoring the goals, which is clearly not the case. But according to Victor, we're doing exactly the same. With all our decisions. We're saying that we've caused the action, but in fact, we're just explaining the action, rationalizing it after it has already been decided. Yeah. Having listened to all the stuff that, that Victor Lama brought up and all the evidence he, he brought up, right? What's your opinion on it? Do, do you think that, that this research could actually disprove free will? It certainly makes you doubt about it. We've just seen two pieces of research that show that what we say that we want to do, the, our intentions, don't actually always correspond to our actions. Mm-hmm. But then if we look back at the second definition of free will that David gave, that is our consciousness being part of the causal chain, actually causing something, then I think there's still room for free will. Okay, what, what do you mean by that specifically? Well, what the sunscreen experiment really shows is that our brain scans can better predict whether we're going to do something or not than our intentions. But I don't think that means that there's no room for free will at all. At the very beginning of the experiment, you say, yes, I'm going to use sunscreen or no, I'm not going to use it. And then after two weeks, you're asked, did you use the sunscreen or not? Mm -hmm. But in that two-week interval, every time that you decide to use the sunscreen or not, your consciousness can actually play a role in that. Every day that you're using it or not using it, you can have a deliberate discussion. Maybe today I'm too lazy. Maybe I don't want to go upstairs to get the sunscreen. Those are all decisions that you make. Yeah, what you're saying is that consciousness or your conscious self can still be part of the causal chain 
in that moment. In that moment, right? Maybe there is no correlation between you saying that at the very beginning of the experiment and what you actually do over that two-week interval, but that does not say something about every time you make that deliberation over the course of those two weeks. And on top of that, this is just a very specific situation. We're looking at people in California mm. that have been in a brain scanner, that have been exposed to certain statements about sunscreen, and then we're actually looking if they use that sunscreen or not. I don't think that means that the same applies, the same conclusions can be drawn about other situations. Yeah, but, but other sort of decisions or intentions you have, like your intention to, I don't know, uh, go buy some bread for lunch. Or study law. Yeah. And I think with that, we've reached the very core of this problem. Because the nature of neuroscience is as such that we always look at very specific situations. Right? In order to draw conclusions, you want to isolate a certain action. And by doing so, you create an artificial environment to conduct your experiment in, even if it's in real life. And maybe over time you accumulate examples of how free we are in those very artificial environments, but they still stay very specific situations. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you look at just those very specific situations, if you can actually disprove free will in its entirety as a whole. Okay, I agree with you. But, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it's difficult to look at this research and not find it somewhat threatening, right? Like, even if mm. you be believe that it, it cannot say anything about free will as a whole, it, it still says something, right? What I do think that this research clearly shows is that we don't have as much control over our decisions as we like to think. Mm -hmm. And I think based on that, we can come to the conclusion that maybe sometimes we are free, and, and other times, maybe we're not. Um, maybe you guys thought we were done. But we're not. Maybe we've just not reached a real conclusion about whether free will exists or not. Mm -hmm. But I just want to elaborate on the very hypothetical situation that we're not free. That at some point, neuroscience would be able to disprove free will completely. Mm -hmm. Or that people become more convinced that free will does not actually exist. And I'd like to find out what implications that has for our life. And then the question that you could ask yourself then is what would that do to the very fabric of the society that we live in? And it could have an influence on many different aspects of the life that we're living. But then one in particular, the law. Because it feels like in the law, we're punishing people and the underlying assumption is that we are free. 
only if people were to be free and were to actually decide themselves that they are going to commit a murder, then you could put them in jail, right? If they aren't free, if they don't have an influence themselves, shouldn't you just let them go free? And this is actually the reason why we went to talk to David. Law is a social construct. It's not falling out of the air. Well, some people may believe that Moses brought it from the Mount of Sinai with Ten Commandments, but let's not follow that route. Let's he continues explaining to us how our legal system came to be. We'll save you the details, but he talks about two important concepts, retribution and utilitarianism. If we would be in society more convinced that that view is outdated, so that the foundations are maybe not only scientifically, personally, I believe more philosophically outdated. I don't think so, because there are two possibilities, and I am not a fortune teller, so I'm offering them to you. Imagine a future in which the idea of free will is becoming less and less popular, whether that be because of advancing neuroscientific insights, Victor Lama's book, or other reasons. If people are getting more and more convinced that we do not have the free will, then it could be that they are less and less inclined to believe in retribution as the core business of criminal law. It could even lead to a more compassionate society, who knows? The whole idea of holding people responsible because they are evildoers and they deserve it, etc., 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 could getting more in the background. But all these concepts that we use to hold people responsible could still survive from a pure utilitarian motivation of criminal law, which has always been one of the main motivations of criminal law. Mm-hmm. Criminal law can perfectly exist if everything is true, what neuroscientists are telling. Footnote, it's doubtful whether it's true, the general conclusions. But even if it would be true, criminal law could still be used as a way to deter and to prevent crime, which is utilitarianism. So what would change is a retributive ground of punishment. Now, that is a radical change. And the question is whether even if a legal system would be convinced that retribution does not have a sound philosophical scientific legitimacy, will that legal system have sufficient legitimacy in society? Because, to be honest, a legal system should reflect society. You agree? Otherwise, you get a technocratic form of politics. In other words, abolishment of democracy. The first change that will have to happen is then in society. In society itself, people must become more and more convinced that determinism is true or that we are no conscious agents, which means that they have to be convinced of a reality which is completely the opposite of their daily life experience. Well, I don't know how you look at it, but that's a heavy job. But I do not exclude that that will happen because, you know, we come from a day and age that we thought that women should not have the right to vote. We come from a day and age that we had zillions of opinions about life. And we come from centuries of misconceptions about the world and we have changed them and the law has adapted itself to it. It's a striking fact that a lot of scientists who deny free will 
in both ways, determinism and conscious agency, are not behaving that way. <laughs> their actions seem to speak louder than their words. I still have to find the first scientist who lives completely as being determined with lack of any conscious agency in his marriage and raises his children that way. But even if that would be possible, I wish him good luck. The data so far indeed suggest that much more of how we decide is governed by these unconscious things than we are than we initially thought. And of course, this is this boundary is moving, 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 moving to maybe towards 1995. I don't know, 100%. Maybe in the end, 99%. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're happy with your point one free will, that's fine with me. I don't see how you could conduct experiments that show that that is the case in general. But then it would not be an all or nothing conclusion, which I also think is, well, much more interesting and also much more likely that we sometimes are free and sometimes not. As always, I am inside the forest and I have just turned on my voice recorder for the very last time. Well, that was the last episode of Matter of the Mind um, called The Source of Your Actions. Personally, this is one of my favorites. I think it really neatly demonstrates how neuroscience isn't just about neuroscience. Neuroscience only matters when you look at it from a wider perspective, from a wider context, when you look at it from other disciplines as well, when you look at it from the way that we live our lives. And I think that is the core of our series, to demonstrate that science is about stories, the stories that we tell each other to understand the world outside of us, but in this, our case, also the world inside of us. Uh, once again, if you enjoyed it, you know, the beauty of podcasts is that they don't disappear into um, the ether, but they actually continue to live on online. So if you enjoyed it, uh, do share it with, uh, with your friends, with other people. Thank you to the experts of our episodes, um, specifically Professor Victor Lamme from the University of Amsterdam. David Roof from Maastricht University and Lika Asma currently at the Munich School of Philosophy, but she used to be at the Free University of Amsterdam, which is where we interviewed her. Max Kran made the intro, Christina Spoyala read out the poem, and Lucy Livesey made the amazing logo. Uh, music in this episode is from Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevier, NAPZ, Daniel Birch, Hagsogler and Newt, Three Chain Links, Chet Crouch, and Poddington Bear. You can find all the names of the songs and of the artists in the description if you're interested. And that is it. That is the end of our series. But not before we thank you as a listener. You were the one that devoted an hour every time to listen to our voices, to listen to us rambling on. And I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope we've entertained you. I hope we've thought you something, but most importantly, I hope we've managed to convey some of the fascination that we feel for the brain to you. 
Um, it feels a bit sad to say goodbye. And because of that, we might, might, might just have a little, little um, bonus episode for you in a couple of weeks. Um, but until then, I guess it's time to say goodbye.